0: road the podcast series all about facing failure overcoming difficulties improving our research culture and so much more all set within the higher education and research environment if you're joining us for the first time then you're welcome to listen to these episodes in any order or pick and choose the ones that interest you but I do recommend listening to episode 1 which is a short introduction to this project first that episode outlines what we're trying to do here, how the project came about, why we use the language we use throughout the episodes and a few other technical bits such as funding and ethics as well. Although this podcast was made as part of my work as training coordinator for graduate students at the University of East Anglia, I'm not a professional sound engineer or radio host and all of my guests were volunteers recording from their own homes with the equipment they had to hand. Please bear with us if the episodes aren't always quite as polished as professional podcasts The message they convey is what's important here. Speaking of that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it gives you something to think about, either now or in the future, it inspires you to try something different, or it makes you feel less like the only person in the world when you face setbacks or difficulties in your work. If you have any feedback or comments about this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Contact details are in the show notes. Show notes have been created for this and every episode. They contain links to as many of the books, people, websites, or other resources mentioned by our interviewee, combined with some of my thoughts and notes. Show notes for every episode can be found at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Greaves. Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of East Anglia. As you might expect from that introduction, Tom shares a philosophical view on the broad topic of failure, introducing some philosophers and concepts, but he relates everything back to the real world of academia and provides, despite his attempt not to, what I found to be useful touchstones, concepts and yes, even tips for applying these concepts to our research and teaching. The conversation today kept coming round to this idea of reframing our views, whether that's evaluating things on different scales, or accepting the scale we evaluate life on is not fixed, to examining the language we use. It was a positive, practical conversation that sets the bar high for how we act as an academic community whilst being rooted in reality. I really hope you enjoy it. Hi Tom, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello Emma, nice to be here.
0: (laughs) Ah, uh, welcome again, because this is our second attempt to get started. So, do you want to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Who you are, what you do for a job, and how you got there?
1: Sure, no problem. So, uh, I'm Tom Greaves. I lecture in the philosophy department at UEA. Uh, I suppose, like uh, many academics, I had a, a slightly long and winding path to get there, um, with a number of hiccups and. Uh, and uh, fairly large hurdles along the way, um, but I made it into a job that I had really wanted to do um, since I came across philosophy in my in my late teens. So um, I've been very lucky um, to to make it here, and and I enjoy uh, my job teaching philosophy.
0: Did you? Would you mind just telling us a bit about your academic path? So, did you do a PhD, and then did you do some research, go straight into a uh, lectureship? position, do something else altogether at some point?
1: Sure. Um, I had a pretty straightforward uh, academic path uh, in terms of uh, knowing where I wanted to get to. Um, but I So I, I did uh, an MA and a PhD at, at Warwick University. Um, after the MA, I applied for some funding to do a PhD, which I didn't get in the first year Um, so the chap who was going to be my supervisor said well the best thing you can do since you want to work on German philosophy is uh, go away and learn German which seemed very sensible Um, so I I spent a year actually teaching English as a foreign language and then going on the other side of the classroom starting to learn German Uh, and my second time around I I applied for funding for the PhD again um, and was lucky enough to get some funding the second time, uh, and then during my PhD uh, got a little bit of funding uh, from the German Academic Exchange uh, Council to go to Germany for a year. So I was able to continue uh, learning German, which re- really helped my my PhD. Uh, and then um, when I finished the PhD, like like many people, that's that's perhaps one of the the hardest moments in in uh, an attempt to to pursue an academic career, um, I was looking around for lots of jobs. Of course, um, came to Norwich just because my partner at the time was uh, got a job at the hospital, and um, uh, emailed the Department of Philosophy and said, uh, "If you need anyone to do some tutoring, um, then uh, I'm here and I'm available."
0: That's really that's really confident. I and need to remember to do that more often you don't get what you don't ask for right so
1: i think that's right and and i have to say that it wasn't my own confidence it was it was encouragement from others to just say look you should just try this i mean wh- what's it going to hurt and i was quite reluctant at, at first so so that's something also uh, uh, to remember to listen to others who are encouraging you to do these uh, brave things
0: just as a sidebar for a second cuz you talked about learning german well, teaching English as a foreign language and learning German as an adult. And I interviewed someone the other day who said that learning another language as an adult is just an exercise in facing up to mistakes and failures and having to be confident <laughs> enough to overcome them. And do you agree? Do you have anything to add on that topic?
1: No, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's really interesting. I, I've been, I was chatting to one of my students the other day uh, about, about learning German as an adult and I have to say, it was, a, it was a daunting prospect having, like I think many British people struggle to learn foreign languages uh, at school. Uh, it was a daunting prospect to think, oh, I'm going to try and learn German to a level where it's going to be helpful for my PhD. And, and yes, particularly living in Germany, um, you know, once you actually start using it as your everyday language or trying to use it as your everyday language, it is uh, an exercise in learning to deal with making mistakes constantly. In fact, I made a friend out there who, an American chap who had um, uh, uh, grown up in uh, Latin America, so his native language was Spanish, so most of his childhood he'd been trying to operate in his second language in English and then he was learning german and and with me in germany and he just said i've just spent my whole life like this you know i just i just assume that there's going to be mistakes in pretty much everything i say um so so that was a that was a lesson in in patience and in in how to deal with with not getting things perfect first time
0: i also did my um went to germany after my phd and i yeah i would If I was with other international people, I would just try my rubbish German all the time, but not around German people. And I I think that was it. It was the fear of making a mistake. And it really held me back. So kudos to everyone who doesn't let it hold them back.
1: Yeah, I'll just just add one more thing. I'm not sure uh, it's exactly the same kind of tack of thought, but for anyone who's considering learning a foreign language as an adult, um, what what really got me going... um, and, and differentiated it from my school experience was just thinking okay I'm I'm actually going to do this in a way which is as soon as possible focused on what I want to do with it so in, in my case you know reading some pretty tricky philosophy obviously that wasn't possible immediately but I just thought look I don't want to spend a year learning how to book a hotel room <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, before I actually you know try and do some of this stuff that I there's the reason that I want to do it. And I think, you know, obviously lots of people will have different reasons for wanting to learn a foreign language. But that's what really cracked it for me was thinking, OK, this is the thing I'm doing it for as soon as possible. I'm going to start trying to do that.
0: That's great advice. I think that's true of everything. I sometimes teach people to knit and I just say, if you don't want to start with a scarf, I'm not going to make you start with a scarf because, frankly, it's boring and you'll, you'll quit. Yep. Um, yeah so no great advice uh, your German you, would you consider yourself fluent a bilingual fluent that will go with that. Uh,
1: certainly not bilingual I, <laughs> I was fairly fluent at the end of, of, of that whole process I think I'm probably gradually uh, uh, gradually declining in German but I just try to keep it up I learn I read some German occasionally and listen to the radio and stuff so I think I'm maybe not fluent but not not too bad good,
0: good. Uh, without we should go back to the topic of conversation and which is thinking about the broad topic of failure, whatever that means to you within mm. research and HE, and you have, um, you've already told me you have a lot of thoughts on this from an academic perspective, from a philosophy perspective, so I'm happy to hand over to you to share some of these these ideas, however you want to frame them.
1: Sure, great. Well, I'll do my best to sort of uh, put a few thoughts on the table and then then maybe see what you think as we go great. along. Yeah. Um yeah. I think the reason that we're we're sitting here today and that I'm chatting to you is that um, a few years ago, our university, like many universities, had an exercise in in creating a a university vision and a a university plan. And they, at that time, opened it up to consultation to staff. Um, There was a big kind of Facebook-like piece of software where we were all encouraged to kind of put in our tuppence worth uh, in terms of what the, the plan and the vision should look like and uh, you know on the whole I thought that was that, that was a great exercise particularly the idea that we were encouraging everybody who worked at the university so uh, academic staff and, and all the other staff were encouraged to kind of feed into that process so yeah I thought that was a great exercise um, but one thing that really got me thinking and, and got me I suppose if I'm honest a little bit uncomfortable and a bit irritated um with that process was that we went in with a kind of vision sketched out which which rested on four pillars of success Um, so there was there's research success uh degree success uh various other successes that our university vision was meant to uh rest on and, and is still meant to rest on and and that kind of uh, way of framing our vision didn't sit very well with me as, as a as someone who was thinking about, well, what is the point in, uh, in universities? What is the point in higher education? Uh, and I suppose that's something that I've I've thought about all the time and that I think most philosophers <laughs> think about all the time. Um, uh, I'm not sure about other academic disciplines, but philosophy in particular is the sort of thing where once you start doing it, um, people immediately kind of ask you kind of well, what's the point in that and what are you going to do with that? and um, and it so it forces you back to sort of think about, well, yeah, what is the point in this in this whole kind of radical self-reflection exercise that that goes by the name of philosophy. So I think about that a lot, and and I I take that attitude with me uh, to almost everything that I do. And so when I was when I was thinking about the university vision and the university plan, I thought that it kind of preempts too much to to put our whole vision on on four pillars of success. Um, it seemed to me to be a fairly problematic kind of buzzword bit of jargon. That was floating around at the time, and and that something that uh, perhaps during the last while of of COVID and and radical kind of transformations in the way that we work in the university and so forth has forced a little bit more self reflection and introspection about about what the point of this whole exercise is, and and I think perhaps some people have been moving away from this kind of hyper optimistic, I would say hyper goal driven. Um, idea that everything is is balanced on on pillars of success I wanted to think a little bit more about the the other side of that and and what I thought about that about about the place of failure in the various aspects of of what we do in in academia Um, so one thing I was thinking about at that time was the kind of bit of jargon that was going around before before success before success became the bu- the buzzword um, for a number of years. It seemed that excellence was the buzzword in academia. That ev- that we had kind of X excellence and Y excellence and Z excellence, and everything was excellent in one way or another. And I was sort of thinking about well, does that make a difference whether we say excellence or success? Is this just a kind of change in fad or fashion in, in buzzwords. And I suppose I, I had some concerns about, about excellence. Sometimes it, it seemed to suggest that somehow everybody could be above average in some way, which is obviously nonsense. Um, but in terms of the actual meaning of the words and, and the, the possible implications of the words, I, I decided that I, I probably prefer excellence. Uh, and the reason for that is that it kind of focuses us more on the process or has the potential to to focus us more on the process and the kind of character that we're developing as people who are engaged in these various activities that we that we do at university. Uh, you know, the, So these can be developing excellent attitudes, excellent processes, excellent methodologies. Uh, so it seems potentially less outcome focused or, or completely goal driven a success. And, and as a, a quick aside to that, uh, I also it also struck me that uh, the ancient Greek word for virtue is arete, which is also sometimes trans- translated as excellence. So, you know, that struck me as a rather better kind of vision for a university. Uh, excellence that can be focused on, on process and building of certain kinds of attitude and certain kinds of character, rather than an, an entirely goal-driven, end-driven um, kind of vision. So that's that's what got me thinking about it, and and ultimately I think one of my my small rants that I that I posted on this uh, consultation process. Uh, found its way uh, into your hands and uh, you invited me on the podcast
0: yeah oh just a few things there to touch on i think the first thing that i've just taken from that that i hadn't thought of before is this idea of when you talk about excellence in the processes and you said about having excellent methods and and things like that is about our behavior and how we mm-hmm. can act no matter what the the outcome ends up being I guess you can be proud of how you act and I know there's lots of talk at the minute about research culture and how we can improve research culture and perhaps do you think that you know by focusing on the process and how we act every step along the research journey is what is is a way to achieve that as opposed to just what outcomes can we have both in terms of academia and the research culture.
1: Yeah I think that's absolutely right and and you know I'm really encouraged by the fact that there are lots of people thinking about these things, and and although there is a culture which, which which in many ways creates lots of pressures for particular kinds of outcome and particular kinds of output, um, there are also various in you know various levels and various departments of the university lots of people who are thinking about the sorts of things that that I was getting at and that you've just you've just described that it's kind of the whole um, journey of the process that we should be thinking about and of course um, the point of this podcast is to think about the various ways in which failure is something that we all have to face in in those processes and those those journeys and that um, it's not something that we can we can totally eliminate and that it's something that we have to Firstly, learn to live with, and and secondly, kind of see how we can, how it fits into that process, uh, I suppose. So, so yeah, I think I think, I think that's exactly right.
0: You say learn to live with it, and and we do. And you also said a bit earlier. You talked about excellence, suggesting we're in a you know that everyone's above average, and. I I hesitate when, you know, I never try and say, oh, well, in academia, this, because I think every workplace probably has things that are similar and different. But we do work in an environment where people are good at, you know, everyone who's, well, the majority of people working in research and academia are working towards or have a PhD. I know that that's field dependent, not in some practical subjects, perhaps. But so we're working with high achievers, and we're working in a place that where people have always excelled at school, at university, in general, and I wonder if that makes it more difficult, perhaps sometimes, if people have never experienced failure before they come into doing research, or that they they're not they don't think that other people are failing at things.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely right. Um, you know, I haven't haven't thought about exactly that that point um, coming into this, uh, but but obviously it's something that I've. Uh, I, I've kind of experienced and and that uh, is is a part of academic life and and you're and you're absolutely right when I say one problem with the jargon of excellence is that it might suggest that everyone is above average um, it is of course true that in some particular respects uh, everyone in academia is above average or many people are, are above average in some in some very particular respect so so that that's true of our workplace and and I think that um, I think you're right that that one of the things that, that can create a particular problem for us is that we we obviously we recognize that um, we've worked hard to get um, positions in that workplace or to to hold on to uh, some kind of position in, in that workplace and we, and we understand that uh, you know we're surrounded by generally uh, very impressive and, and hard-working people um, and so that can obviously feed into phenomena that that we're all very familiar with like imposter syndrome and, and so forth so however you know uh, well we're doing and however hard-working we are um, it's quite easy to to focus on our own failings um, in this context because we know that we're surrounded by impressive and, and hard-working people um, so so that knowledge certainly certainly has the potential to feed into into some of those kind of uh, difficult attitudes problematic attitudes of uh, imposter syndrome I mean there, there are obviously a number of other factors that that feed into, into into those kinds of feelings and attitudes but but perhaps that's that's one of them
0: just, I was going to say quickly, your answer doesn't have to be brief, but before we um, move on to some other of your thoughts, do you have any ways of dealing with that if that happens to you, if you compare yourself to other people or wonder about your place within within the community?
1: You know, not really, <laughs> I have to say. Um, it has happened to me. Uh, it has happened to me, you know, at various points in my academic career as a as a student, and and then uh, at various points of you know having temporary contracts, and and um, uh, later in, in my career I had a an open ended contract, it was a teaching contract, and uh, very recently I've kind of transferred over to a to a research and teaching contract. So, you know, at various stages along that path, there were. There were lots of opportunities for me to think, "Oh my goodness, this career is not going anywhere," <laughs> um, or, or "I'm not as good as the people who have a who have a full contract," or "I'm not as good as the people who've got a research contract." Um, and that that that's been really, um, you know, some really difficult times along the way. And certainly, I've had, you know, moments of pretty deep imposter syndrome and just general kind of. Um, struggling with my own kind of uh attitude towards my own work and my own position and and I and I have to say that I I don't have any you know easy get-outs for that kind of of attitude uh that kind of uh, feeling that that many of us kind of encounter at, at one stage or another or, or indeed at, at multiple stages in our in our academic careers um I suppose, you know, some relatively familiar and slightly cliched kind of points are that you need to kind of hold on. You need to think about what it is that you are enjoying about your current situation. And you need to focus on those as much as possible and then wait to see how how things kind of recontextualize. Um, as as things develop and uh, i suppose i'm slightly reluctant to give kind of really concrete advice because i'm i'm really aware that people are in very different situations as well as 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 well as having some commonalities uh, amongst us all and that uh, you know it's very easy to fall into the trap which i think is is part of the problem here which is this kind of hyper optimistic kind of like oh yes we all struggle and we all encounter failure but if we just hold on it will be all right in the end um, kind of thing and and i and i find that sometimes a bit disingenuous and and not particularly mm-hmm. helpful so so i'm i'm slightly kind of reluctant to to go down that route but i i do think it's true that you know when i have managed to one extent or another to refocus on what it is that I'm jo- enjoying about the job at that particular moment, and to hold on to that, and then things do kind of recontextualize themselves um, over time.
0: And you know what, I think what's in there, you were still, you were just honest, and so I think that's as good as giving any advice, because I don't really know you, but we know of each other in a professional context, and I would you always just exude an air of confidence. And so I would never, I would always just thought, well, it's just got things sorted. And then you said, no, there've been times in my career where I've deeply compared myself to other people or felt imposter syndrome or whatever. So just as good as any advice is just people occasionally and quietly admitting that I think it just normalizes it for everyone else. And it makes you realize that what you portray onto other people isn't necessarily the whole picture. So thank you. And, um, We've been talking, we've gone straight in on the topic of mentioning failures and successes. So I guess not first up, because we've already chatted for quite a while, but would you like to explain to us what they mean to you, your perspective on that? I know that was something else you were happy to discuss.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I put my philosophy hat on, having got, having got slightly worked up about the, the the four (laughs) pillars of success. Um, You know, I put my philosophy hat on and I thought, okay, well, what do I think about this and, you know, what do I generally think about success and failure? Um, So there are some some sort of general principles of general ideas that I that I came up with that I I think might be helpful in, in various contexts. Uh, what I was I was discussing with one of my colleagues um, just after you invited me to do this podcast um, that I was going to come here and, and talk about success and failure uh, and he immediately asked me this question which I thought was was really interesting uh, are there things that are neither a success or a failure and and my immediate response to him was well yeah of course almost everything and um, that struck me, struck me as, a, as a kind of helpful starting point for, for thinking generally about success and failure is that, you know, from, a, I think, a fairly straightforward point of view, hardly anything that we ever do is a success or a failure. Mm. You know, most things come somewhere in the middle. And uh, that's a fairly straightforward point, obviously. It's not going to kind of like, bowl anyone over <laughs> as something that they've never noticed before but nevertheless i think it's it, it's pretty important When once you start talking about success and failure it's very easy to kind of think oh yeah we all know about success and failure we're constantly kind of faced with success and failure but in fact what we're constantly faced with is a load of stuff that we're doing and a load of stuff that other people are doing that is generally somewhere in between success and failure and that you know if we're talking about the extremes, uh, I certainly wouldn't say that we never we never hit them, but we we rarely encounter uh, or or do things that are unqualified successes or or unqualified failures. And I think that's a, a kind of helpful point to kind of bear in mind as we as we go along in in talking about these things and and as a kind of general attitude to life and our own, Uh, kind of work and our own activities is that you know we're rarely going to hit those extremes and so we're going to have to live with most of the time uh, being somewhere in the middle but I don't think that's that's the only way to look at success and failure Um, so you know one of the main things that I started to think when I when I put my philosophy hat on and, and kind of put my mind to this a little bit is that, of course, um, there are lots of different ways to, to look at success and failure and lots of different ways to look at your evaluations and your, your judgments of your own work and your own activities. So, so that's one of them. If you kind of just imagine a, a line of evaluation that has you know pure positivity at one end, which would be success, and then pure negativity at the other, which would be failure. You know, one reasonable way to look at that is to say, well, yeah. So success is at one end and failure is at the other, and almost everything we do is somewhere in the middle. But you can you can look at that line in in different ways, right? So another attitude you can have is, well, if I'm not at the end of pure positivity, if I haven't got unqualified or almost unqualified success, then it's a failure. You know, so you make the whole line, pretty much, into into failure, and then you just have this point of extreme positivity at the end, which would be the only point of success. Or alternatively, you can you can reverse that, right? You can say, well, look, actually, everything that's not a complete and unmitigated disaster is a success in some way. Um, you know, there's something successful and something positive and something good about everything that's that's not a complete and unmitigated disaster so if you just have that one line of evaluation from a negative to a positive there are already at least three ways that you can that you can look at that you can say well you know there's success and failure at both ends and pretty much everything is somewhere in the middle you can say pretty much everything is a failure except for the extreme successes, or you can say pretty much everything is a success except for the extreme failures. So I think, you know, noticing, that even with a very simple line of evaluation like that, you have multiple different ways that are available to you for thinking about the place of your activities, the place of your work uh, in on that line of evaluation is a helpful thing to notice, right? It's a, it's a helpful thing to notice and a helpful thing to start trying to teach yourself to sort of say, look, I can look at these things in different ways and it would be a good idea to try to learn to switch my perspective um, as and when it's helpful. So for example, if you feel that you need a little kick to get you going a bit more, you could try looking at things from the per, from the perspective of well, everything that's not a complete success is a failure, right? So I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate using that perspective <laughs> all the time. Uh, if you do, and I think many of us fall into this trap, um, you know, quite often, then then you obviously set yourself up for for some for a good deal of misery. And heartache, but I think, you know, there, is a, there are times where that kind of perspective can give you a kick, can, can kind of be helpful. And, and all those other perspectives that I just mentioned, I think they, they have their place in thinking about what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve and how to, how to evaluate that. Um, so there's that thought that we should be open ourselves to the different kinds of ways that we can look at success and failure. And try to kind of teach ourselves and, and train ourselves to switch perspective um, where as and when it's helpful to do so so I don't want to give the impression here that that's a super easy thing to do right and I think that this is this is one of the one of the failings of a certain kind of motivational discourse um, which can kind of give you the impression that Look, all you ever need to do is find the right perspective and um, look at things in the right way. And you will just switch your mind to doing that. And then you'll see things in a different light and everything will be fine. You know, obviously, there are there are structures for evaluating our work. There are structures for evaluating our processes and our outcomes that we are more or less submitted to, that we internalize. Uh, And uh, that may or may not be helpful for us actually getting on with the work at any particular time. So, so I'm not suggesting that look everybody, just get it into your heads that you can look at things from the right perspective and then it'll all be fine. But I nevertheless I think you know when you look at it in that slightly abstracted kind of way of kind of like well how do you evaluate success and failure just with a simple line. Uh, from positive to negative, like that. There are different ways of looking at it, and I think we can, to a certain degree, train ourselves to to look at things in a different perspective. And often, often that can be helpful, even if it doesn't, you know, solve all of our difficulties at any particular stage. And I think um, I think you can go further with that that line of thought. So, I was just describing a, a fairly simple kind of. Line from a, a positive to a negative, but when you reflect on things a bit more, um, you know it's it's fairly obvious that for most of our activities, particularly you know the kind of complex activities that we engage in 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 the academic world, there are just numerous different scales of success to failure or positivity to negativity that we could reasonably employ to to evaluate. Um, the things we're doing. And, you know, we can, we can broaden that out to include kind of the different ways in which we can evaluate how things are going in our lives in general. So just to give a, a very quick and an obvious example, and one that's very familiar to many academics, I think, um, you know, if you look at your life, at a particular moment, and, and you ask yourself the question, well, how are things are going? um you can say well things are going brilliantly i've just got this new contract i've just got this new research grant i've just got um such and such new publications my students have all got firsts this term um oh but i haven't you know spoken to any of my friends for the last three months and uh, my family are all pretty miserable because i haven't managed to spend any time with them um you know that's an obvious and and nevertheless, I think very familiar kind of situation that many people in academia and, and other walks of life find themselves in is that they, they're evaluating on one scale in terms of uh, career success. And then they they step back and they think, well, actually, in the wider scheme of things, there are a number of scales for evaluating how I'm getting on here. And, um, and uh, I missed this other one. And uh, actually, right. things aren't going as well as I thought.
0: The the perfectionism scale. If I could just jump in there, that's one thing that came to my mind. You know, when you were talking about if everything, if anything isn't a complete failure, then it's a success. Or if anything isn't a complete success, success is a failure. And what came to my mind is is also judging things. If if perhaps you have a bit of perfectionist tendencies on that scale so that it's very easy to set the bar super high, but the level of perfectionism or the level of like how important it is to succeed is is different. You know, if we that perfectionism, you need to submit a paper or to submit a grant application or to get that experiment right first time isn't the same level of perfectionism you need to apply to everything in your life. But if you always Mm. compare it to that scale, because we're used to using that scale in academia, because a lot of our research has to be perfect, you know, to get that tiny result. um, Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, so that really made me think, okay, can I use different scales of of effort, perfectionism? I'm not I'm not quite sure I have the right word, but is that making any sense to you?
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, So. So what you're suggesting, I think, is that, you know, I've said something about the different perspectives you can have on a single scale. Uh, But then I said, but of course, most of the time, there are multiple appropriate scales. And and you're saying, well, yeah, and if you're using multiple scales at one time, you might be using different perspectives on each of those scales. So you might have one scale which you are, thinking of in a relatively perfectionist way and another scale where as you say that would be counterproductive and so you should try as best you can to to use the counter-perfectionist perspective on on a different scale Uh, I think that's right
0: and just yeah to stop and think am I using the right scale or the right approach and not just within work because quite often I find I take that sort of scientific or that research approach home and it probably doesn't need a spreadsheet whatever it is I'm trying to (laughs) decide to do
1: yeah but on the other hand uh, you know if the family finances can sometimes do with a spreadsheet
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, finances I mean packing lists for a holiday I don't well I don't know that's a that's a decision for me to make but even joking aside even within work contexts there are times where we don't always need to work at that same level or have that same approach or, or th- apply the same scale which I think is what you said.
1: Um, sure I think that's absolutely right and I would just say you know recently I've been having some conversations with some some good friends and and the one thing that's come out a number of times in those conversations is is this kind of perfectionism and as you say in you know you know there are good reasons to cultivate a perfectionist attitude in in many of the academic activities that we that we undertake but but i would say that an absolutely perfectionist attitude is re- is very very rarely going to help so i think you could have a relatively perfectionist attitude and and you're right that's that's a good thing if you're submitting a paper or grant proposal but if you push it to the extreme, that can that can be really counterproductive, and, and we all know that, that that leads us to never submit the paper or or never submit the grant proposal because we've always thought, well, there's just something else I could do with it, or this is, this bit isn't quite right. And I and I you know I do know lots of people, and and again I think there are lots of reasons for this. It's not a straightforward kind of um, it's not a straightforward kind of difficulty. There are many kind of social and uh, social and sociological reasons, I think, and psychological reasons that feed into to people developing these kinds of attitudes at different times in their lives. But but certainly recently, I've been having conversations with people who just find it almost impossible to to switch away from from a quite an extreme kind of perfectionism, uh, and that just you know that that can be actually quite debilitating. I think at, at, at a certain stage it means that you you just spend you know inordinate amounts of time um, performing uh, uh, tasks that that don't actually require that much time. Yeah. Uh, but not again. You know um, I don't I, I don't want to overemphasize, but I I do want to emphasize that. That the reason that that we that we develop these kinds of difficulties for ourselves and, and attitudes is is usually pretty complicated, and it is, it has something to do with 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 the way that we are looking at things, but something to do with with what's expected of us at various points and and the interaction between those things. I mean, let me just say, um, in terms of the philosophy that that I read and, and teach and, and think about um, the kind of thing that we've just been discussing about about perfectionism comes out in a really interesting um, kind of way in one of the philosophers that I've been teaching over the last uh, semester which is uh, which is Friedrich Nietzsche uh, so Nietzsche for those who haven't come across him, He's a late late 19th century kind of maverick uh, philosopher p- perhaps one of the most popular philosophers outside of, of academic philosophy I, I think probably more people read Nietzsche's books who aren't studying philosophy than maybe any other philosopher and uh, so he has a he has a, a very wide-ranging appeal and and he had a very kind of checkered academic career himself. Nietzsche, which is which is a pretty interesting thing to to look into. You know, he, he became a full professor of philology, I think, at the age of twenty-two. So he has had this massive kind of uh, rocket career in academia um, early in his life, and then uh, due to due to ill health and, and basic disaffection with 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 the way that academia kind of crushed creativity. Um, he he left academia quite quite early in his life and, and wrote most of his kind of most exciting and interesting philosophy later as he was kind of wandering around an itinerant life in in the Swiss Alps and and Italy. So Nietzsche's a kind of interesting perspective to gain on. Yeah, his biography is an interesting one to have a look at just in terms of a of a kind of maverick and unusual kind of relationship to academia but one of the things that he he says in his philosophy which i think is really interesting from the perspective of the kinds of things that we've just been discussing is that he has this he has this big claim that that modern civilization modern society uh, is falling prey to to what he calls nihilism and um, what he means by nihilism is a kind of extreme kind of disaffection uh, disconnection from the highest values uh, he says that the highest values tend to kind of undermine themselves and we fall into a kind of malaise and disaffection and disorientation to, to do with our own values and 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 what we what we understand about the world and what we think we want to achieve in the world so we fall into this kind of extreme nihilistic kind of attitude and Nietzsche claims that one of the major reasons that that is happening in the modern world is as a kind of fallout of a particular kind of religious attitude a particular kind of theological attitude that cultivated a kind of all or nothing thinking so Nietzsche's claim is that a particular theological attitude was designed to combat nihilism. So it it, it said things like, you know, the world was created by God and therefore it's, it's an absolutely perfect world. Uh, it's the best possible world you could imagine. Um, and we may be kind of imperfect, mortal sinners, but, you know, um, Christ has come to redeem our sins and ultimately if we believe or if we do the right things, um, our sins can be completely redeemed uh, uh, and, and in that sense life will kind of gain a kind of uh, perfect meaning and and that kind of attitude, Nietzsche says is is what has actually created the problem for us because when we try to combat nihilism by saying, no actually, the world is perfect, and actually, all your sins can be redeemed. Um, you create this kind of all or nothing scale. You know, you it's then you have the well, either everything's perfect or everything's a disaster. Either, um, yeah, either uh, I, my sins will be completely redeemed or I'm completely awful and abject and and hopeless. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at these kinds of issues on a kind of grand, grand kind of cultural scale that that Nietzsche's trying to paint for us, is that um, at least one way of looking at things that are going on in, in the modern world is to think that there's a kind of fallout from that kind of religious all or nothing thinking, and that what we ultimately need to do to combat nihilism is not to have a kind of hyper-optimistic view or cultivate a kind of hyper yeah a hyper optimism, but precisely to wean ourselves off the idea that everything has to be perfect or or everything's a disaster, you know, everything's full of meaning or there's no meaning at all. Um, but to but to realise that um you know everything is relatively meaningful and usually bearable. Um, and uh, usually just about worth doing, um, and, that, and, that's, and that's human life, you know. So I think that that's an interesting consequence of, the kind, of a kind of grand scale of the sorts of things that we've been talking about on a sort of more personal, uh, small scale in terms of the things that we all face in our academic careers.
0: Oh, so interesting. I'm just trying to think where to go from there or whether to just, I think most of that, let's just leave that as such an interesting point and a way to view something. I just wonder if, if this sort of black and white, because what you you were saying at the end there, what I, what came to my mind was, as you said, life is just sort of, it's normal. It's in the middle. Most of it's, bearable livable I was thinking like most of it's just like the shade of gray rather than black and white Um, Mm -hmm. and we see a lot of that at the minute I think well I think people have always thought like that but perhaps even more at the minute with with social media and things just being people being able to say something in one tweet or one snippet of it's this way or the other way and people feel that they have to be like you have to love academia or you have to look for a job somewhere else you have to want this or you have to want to do something else whereas sometimes you can just be in something and it's you're just in it you're in that process at the time and there's no outcome yet it's just the process of going through it
1: yeah I think that's right I suppose I suppose one thing I would kind of add to that which might might lead me into to a few a few more of my Mm -hmm. my my kind of uh, musings on the topic um you know, obviously, <laughs> it was a bit un- unkind of me to sort of say, there you go, Emma. Here's Nietzsche's theory of nihilism. What do you think of that? Um, but, but, but I think I think your response was was really helpful and, and kind of lets me gives me an opportunity to to clarify. You know, one thing that I think is the kind of outcome of this is that, yeah, in a sense, that you know, most of life is grey in that it's not black and white, where we mean black and white in in both a kind of evaluative sense and also in a kind of truth sense. So when you're talking about social media and people's putting their p- opinions out on social media as either, you know, it's either this way or it's that way, that's that's often to do with a certain attitude towards truth as well as as value. So I think I think that's right. And we can we can reasonably say, well look, things aren't black and white either for truth or for value most of the time. You know, we live in this world, but I, I would hesitate to call it a grey world. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think possibly there's a danger that we, we then kind of somehow boost the all or nothing thinking that was the problem by saying, look, if it's not black and white, it's grey. And the implication is it's kind of mundane uh, kind of probably a little bit dull um, you know and it, obviously this is true of quite a lot of life you know whether an academic academic life or or any other life I think you know most of us leave lives lives where there are big chunks of gray uh, where quite a lot of it is is fairly dull um, but but I don't think that that's the only the only conclusion we should reach from this idea that we should be careful about, Cultivating a optimistic view of things, um, you know. Um, so, yes, we live we live most of our lives somewhere in the middle, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't neg- that we should try neglect to kind of pursue, uh, I suppose, what some people call like peak experiences, uh, moments of kind of genuine insight moments of I I don't know extreme interest and excitement and uh, all those kinds of things which you know I think many of us intellectually go into academia because we're kind of intellectual people and we find that in certain ways of looking at the world and certain ways of thinking we have experienced kind of quite radically life transforming kind of insights into things and, and and ways of, of looking at things that we had not experienced before and and that's why I think many of us kind of decide, yeah, this is gonna be a great career to pursue, because I can pursue some more of this. You know, I can I can pursue some more of this kind of transformative insight and some more of this kind of, you know well, or accumulative knowledge which is ultimately going to kind of like change the way that I look at things and the way that people look at things in general um so yeah I I think I think you're right I think we need to learn to live with the grey but the grey isn't just mundane and dull I think the grey uh has to be kind of uh understood as also a kind of open-ended path in which there are turns and there are transformations that can be kind of truly illuminating and this this I suppose is is me trying to uh rather bluntly segue into my next kind of set of set of musings about this because it struck me that as well as as having various scales upon which we can appropriately evaluate um, our various activities and various ways that we can look at those scales, Um, you know, what we need to do is to think about education and life more generally, uh, and the process of learning and research as a kind of radically open-ended process and activity. Um, and, And this has some kind of quite interesting, and I think for some people, slightly disturbing consequences if we, if we take seriously the idea that our learning process and our research process is, is radically open-ended and that, in fact, actually life in general is, is radically open-ended uh, until we die, right? Um, what I mean by this is, you know, obviously there are goals And there are kind of output driven activities that we that we pursue in academia, the same as, you know, the same as most other um, careers. But I think I think most academics in one way or another, uh, certainly not all academics, but I think most academics would be would be at least in theory, kind of on board with the idea that that there's something about teaching and learning and research that essentially and ideally should be an open-ended process, right? So we're familiar with this kind of thing, obviously, in thinking about, you know, how we go on learning after we finished our degrees, um, lifelong learning. Uh, Those of us who have gone into academia obviously think that Continuing to learn and uh, is sort of bound up with the process of research and teaching. Um, and you know, I think most of us are, are on board with the idea that that this open-ended process isn't just a a process of adding more, you know, adding little bits more um, day by day. Although that can certainly be be a part of the process, adding new facts, adding new new ideas. Um, but that sometimes we we reach these points which I just called kind of transformative insights, um, you know maybe radically new perspectives, things that we really hadn't kind of thought of before, maybe just a new idea, you know something as 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 apparently bland as that you know you just actually come up with a new idea um, for your new, for your next paper instead of a Instead of a rehash of the of the old ones, um, and, and, and it's those moments that, that we're working towards and that we think are kind of, you know actually the point of this activity, right. So it's an open-ended process where we're we're aiming towards those those transformative moments, those kind of moments of of insight. And I suppose I said a moment ago that that I think when you take that idea seriously, that learning and research um, are open-ended processes and that life in general is a is an open-ended process this can have a very i suppose psychologically motivationally kind of positive sides to it right so if, if we think about just our own kind of personal motivation Um, you know you get some motivational cliches out of this you can sort of say well look this is an open-ended process so I shouldn't compare myself to other people I should just compare myself to to how I was doing yesterday I shouldn't get stuck on a single scale of evaluation Um, I shouldn't get stuck on the idea that if I just manage to achieve X, Y, or Z, then I'll be an educated person, or I'll be a good teacher, or I'll be a real researcher, or something like that. So, you know, I think as much as most of us recognize these things, it's still very easy to fall into these traps of just thinking, yeah, if I just get there, I'll have finally made it, kind of thing. And I think, you know, there can be there are positive things about recognizing that this is an open-ended process and uh, that uh, we get kind of motivational boosts out of of recognizing those things. But the reason that I say that taking this seriously can also be kind of quite disturbing and uh, difficult for, for us to really take on board is that it seems to me that all of those Motivational positives have a reverse side, right? If, if if life and learning are a kind of open-ended transformative processes, then you know we say we well, just compare yourself to how you were doing yesterday, but but maybe you're not doing as well as you were doing yesterday. Or if you notice that there are various other evaluative standards which are important that you've been neglecting, it might turn out that you've been neglecting some really important ones, and you're actually not doing as well as you thought you were or you know if you come across obstacles or you experience failure and you think actually these obstacles and this experience of failure has been a really important learning opportunity you know this is the sort of thing that we that we often get from kind of motivational discourse it's kind of like think about your obstacles and your failure as an opportunity to learn well the reverse side of that is that your obstacles and your failure do also have the potential to totally grind you down hmm. right and and also if it turns out that you're lucky enough not to experience obstacles and failure then you don't have that learning opportunity <laughs> you know so i suppose these these are often thought of as a kind of Pessimistic attitude, and uh, and I think some some philosophers certainly get tarred with the brush of being a bit cynical and uh, and a bit pessimistic. But it seems to me that we really have to take this seriously if we're going to say that that learning and education are transformative and open ended. We we need to take on board these lessons, which can be really good for our motivation, but notice that they all actually have a negative side as well and that if we kind of deliberately ignore that negative side then we're only going to get half the picture and that actually that negative side is still going to linger there and potentially come up and and bite us in our in our more dejected dejected moments Um, so one one kind of area of philosophy that I've been trying to learn a little bit more about recently uh, is is, uh, Chinese philosophy, ancient Chinese philosophy. And in particular, uh, I've been really interested in the philosophy of Taoism. And in the ancient Taoist texts, you get lots of really interesting stories which are designed to teach us about this kind of reversibility of the open-ended process. So you get lots of stories which are designed to teach us that what looks like failure might turn out to be success and what looks like success might turn out to be failure. So you know one of the nice little stories that is told um, in one of these texts is about carpenter looking for a tree to make a bell stand and goes around with his assistant and looks at all the different trees and they find this magnificent kind of really ancient tree uh, and it's completely gnarled up and kind of horrible for working within carpentry. Um, and the the carpenters sort of thinking about this and at a later point sort of, can, it comes to understand that, you know, he thought this was a useless kind of gnarled up tree, but the reason that it's so magnificent and ancient and has lived such a long time is precisely because it's kind of gnarled up and and useless from his kind of carpentry perspective. Uh, so you get a lot of these kind of nice parables and, and little stories, which are designed to teach us about these kind of switches of perspective that I've been I've been talking about um, during the last while. Um, but it seems to me that if you take that Taoist view Really, really seriously, um, you don't get just a a kind of simple lesson, which is, you know, don't get dejected at your failures because they might turn out to be successes. Um, you you get the reverse of that, of course, which is, don't get too pleased with your successes because they might turn out to be failures. Um, but you also get, uh, if you're really serious about open endedness, the the thought that well, actually there can be that reversal and there can be a reversal of the reversal and a reversal of the reversal and this doesn't end you know so things can get recontextualized the meaning of your successes and your failures can change both because of you learning new perspectives on them but also just events things happen which just recontextualize them and and that doesn't finish right so what that ends up teaching you, I think, is that there's really no such thing as a as a success or a failure, and um, you have to learn to to live with the possibility that this is going to keep changing, uh, at least until you're dead, if not, you know, longer than you're dead. I mean, things can happen. That recontextualize your work, recontextualize your articles, recontextualize your books, um, long after you're dead, and and turn out to make what looked like a success a failure, um, all the other way around, and and that's what we have to to learn to live with if we really take that open endedness seriously, and that's that's much more difficult I think to learn to live with that than the rather simpler kind of motivational cliche which is you know don't worry about your failures because they might turn out to be successes although of course that that is also true and uh, can be helpful to to remember that Um, I think that when we have this kind of larger and I think more radical kind of vision of exactly how open-ended everything is and um, then um, then, then that's a difficult lesson to learn, um, but one that I think uh, I think we should try to learn. Um, uh, it reminds me of of a line from an ancient Greek playwright, Sophocles: um, "Call no man happy until he is dead." And um, you know, again, that's often taken to mean, "Oh, uh, that's a very kind of pessimistic view." Um, you know, but I, I, I'm not so sure. I think it, it means also call no man absolutely miserable until he is dead, and, and perhaps even longer than that. You know, um, the, maybe not your personal feelings and your happiness can change after you're dead, obviously, but your but the meaning of your work and and the meaning of your achievements, such as they are, um, can continue to change after you're dead. So, you know, you certainly don't have a lot of control over that. Um, And, and I think, I think this is what we need to try to learn that not only are success and failure relative in various ways, there are lots of different scales. There are lots of different perspectives to use on them, but that if education is part of the open-ended process of life, um, then then you really have to kind of be serious about saying look there is nothing I can do that that can reasonably be called a success or a failure until at least I'm dead and probably a bit quite a lot of time after that
0: <laughs> I I have two follow-up questions but first of all I'm just recovering from the realization that my papers and articles are going to be available after I'm dead and I hadn't considered that time scale and I'm probably going to proofread things one more time in future. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Um, Just adding to the pressure of, you know, the eternity of things being online. Anyway, more seriously, two things that came up for me on that whole topic of, of an open-ended process to life, learning and research, which, um, and you know what I'm going to ask, which is can we apply them to the real world uh, or to at least to practical living? I should mm. say everything is the real world. The first one is one of the reasons I came up with this topic of, of research and practical activities around failure was was improving how we discuss it within our academic communities. And I felt that the models used to discuss it weren't always the best. So one of the common models I was seeing were were, were people discussing failure from a beyond failure and final point of view so that sort of trope of oh yeah that happened to me I failed with four grants but now look at me I'm a Nobel Prize winner Hmm. and I'm married to a supermodel (laughs) and I think there's something about the I knew at the time that there was something about discussing it from the moment and from the non-finality of it from saying sometimes it's all the time this is just our process whether it works out well or it doesn't work out well you're still in it at the minute you need help with that and or I had that and I know there is also the viewpoint of sometimes discussing things what do people say discuss it from the scar not the wound so when you discuss something and it's raw for you you don't always give the best advice but I think there is something in what you said of of discussing the process and while people are in it because people are never out of this process is what you're saying so do you have any sort of applications for how we can we can do this within our research communities
1: yeah I'm um, yeah you know, I, well I think what you've said is a really good start you know and I and I have a similar kind of uh, I don't know I don't want to be too kind of uh, colorful in my language here but a similar discomfort uh, with that whole what I've been calling motivational discourse but I think it it seeps into so many aspects of our life, doesn't it? And and I suppose, yeah, I think that's one thing just to recognise, to start with, is that often when often it's not a problem of talking about failure. You know, I think actually the, there's a lot of talk about failure, but in exactly the wrong way, just as you've been describing. It's kind of like steps on the ladder to success. Um, You know, the things that you have to go through in order to finally get there. And I think, well, how can I concretize this a little bit more for for people working in academia? You know, one of my favorite philosophers uh, is a a chap called uh, R.G. Collingwood, who was around in the sort of uh, 20s, 30s. Uh, 1920s 30s Uh, and he had this really nice way of describing his publications Uh, he said uh, you know I never I never give um, a final judgment Um, I'm only ever giving an interim report and uh, and I love that and I think that's a really nice way of thinking about what you're doing with academic publications and indeed just thoughts in academia Um, uh, you know and i think that that could help us to concretize kind of this attitude and to, to to try to live this attitude a little bit more is to kind of find the right way to describe the things that we're producing right so i suppose you know i have a lot of little gripes about about managerial jargon and buzzwords and so forth uh, I discussed a little bit of that earlier. Uh, one of my gripes is is about calling our publications outputs. and i I know I'm not alone in in having that gripe, and that's certainly something that's you know been bedded down into academia in the years since I started my career. and you know when when it first came came to be um, that we called our publications outputs. Uh, you know, I was completely, uh, I mean, I was completely outraged and I was completely kind of disaffected by the the idea that this was actually thought to be a kind of reasonable way <laughs> of describing what we were trying to put into the world, uh, these various outputs. Um, so I suppose uh, that's given me the opportunity to have a, another mini grant. Um, but but I would say let's use Collingwood's word instead. And I think you know being academic, academics, academics, and particularly someone you know more on the humanities side, the kind of philosophy I do is is probably more on the humanities side than than some other philosophers. Um, you know I put quite a lot of stock by by the words we use, and and I and I you know I really think that you know part of the point of of Um, academic activity is to is to become more aware of what our words mean and to try to choose them a little bit more carefully Um, so I suppose that's the that's one that that springs to mind is that I would say you still have to call your publications outputs on your on your ref form um, but in your mind try to think of them as interim reports um i think that's a much better way of describing what you're doing right and it kind of helps you to bear in mind that that this is an open ended process
0: that leads me that's really great advice i i love that quote um uh, and it leads me to which was what was my second question was that just wondered if you had any thoughts on this discrepancy discontinuity between the fact that i agree with you that lots of people in academia um in theory view research teaching and learning as open-ended processes but we live in in an in a world and in an academic society where we have to um have outputs uh you know get tenure or permanency um get our Mm -hmm. next contract and it's just this how do we live that value that we believe in in a society that that grades us you know that marks us on outputs every two to five years where's the balance in that you might not have an answer there is no answer probably
1: well yeah no I think that's right uh, I mean it's a really good question and as you just said there's not really an answer and I suppose I would again be a little bit kind of wary of trying to set the balance for other people or or to say kind of like, think about it like this and this would be the right way to think about it. I just think, you know, I suppose what I would encourage people to do is to recognise the tension. I mean, most of us live the tension kind of all the time. So it's it's not that difficult to recognise the tension. Um, I think we live the tension. We we see that this is an open-ended process, and we we know that we have to get out however many publications for the next ref. And and it, you know even in absolutely kind of everyday academic life, like um, like giving grades on essays and things. Um, you know, there's a tension there. You want to help your students to understand this open ended process, you know, this open ended process which remains alive for kind of transformative perspectives and insights. And then, you know, you get down to and give me your essay and I'm going to give you a number. And I, and I think we live that tension all the time and, and there's no way out of that tension. Although, it, I think we also need to kind of remind ourselves that the way we do things is not the only way they could be. Right. So one really interesting thing that I was just thinking about this morning, uh, kind of reading through my notes again and thinking about coming to talk to you and kind of some of the experiences I've had. Um, you know, one thing that sprang to mind was that a few years back, I had a really interesting experience teaching with a lecturer who had contacted me from the Norwich University of the Arts um, and we had a, a really great semester where he came and talked to my students who were doing philosophy of art and aesthetics and he kind of told them a little bit about you know what it's like teaching art to students in the University of the arts and kind of some of the projects that his students were engaged in and and it was really great because my students had been doing philosophy of art, so they'd been thinking of these, you know, pretty abstract kind of theories about art and ideas about art. And it was great to sort of talk to this colleague from the University of the Arts and, and sort of see what his students were actually making and, and describe that. But, but at one stage in his, in his kind of guest lecture, uh, he said, you know, when I started teaching art, we didn't give grades. You know, that's just didn't seem to be what you needed to do in a University of the Arts. Um, it seems crazy to appreciate art and think that appreciating art is, or make art and then appreciate art and think that that has anything to do with giving something a number. And, you know, under certain kind of political pressures and so forth, um, it came about that the University of the Arts now gives grades like every other university. And that just struck me as, as kind of incredible really that, that that had been the case so recently and that I had never imagined that that could have been the case. And it kind of made me think, well, you know, it really doesn't have to be the case that in universities we give people numbers. Um, we just, it, it doesn't have to be like that. And it, and it hasn't always been like that. Um, and so I suppose the outcome of these, these ramblings is to sort of say, look, I think, I think there are two important things to bear in mind. The first is that we live with these tensions and that we shouldn't try to persuade ourselves that we don't, right? and we shouldn't try to persuade ourselves that there is a, is a perfect balance that we can reach what we need to bear in mind is that we live with these tensions and that they are tensions that we need to learn to live with right we need to negotiate them kind of on a daily basis and kind of continually recognize look there's a tension here how am i going to deal with it today kind of thing and I, for me that's the only way you can do it i don't think there is a kind of like magic formula which is like okay i'll always do it like this and and then i'll have the perfect balance between open ended process and and output, I, I don't think there is a perfect balance, but there are there, there are better or worse balances uh, at various stages. So I think that's what, the first thing I would say is bear in mind that there is a tension and that you need to kind of continually reevaluate how you're dealing with that tension. And the, and the second thing I would say is some of these tensions are more essential than others. Um, and some of them are just completely historically and politically contingent. And, you know, if you're teaching art in a University of the Arts, you don't have to give people a number. Um, it's just that that's the, how things are now set up. And uh, probably if you're teaching humanities and, and possibly uh, even more numerically orientated subjects, um, you know, you don't have to give people a number. That's just how things are set up. And so don't forget that a lot of the tensions that we live are contingent and could be different. And there are not a lot of opportunities for most of us to, to change these things. But nevertheless, we shouldn't forget that they can be changed and that if we want them to change, um, we, we can we can try our best to feed into getting them changed. So I suppose those are the two things that I, I'm not sure if I'm still being a bit too abstract, but i am trying to trying to sort of concretize it for us is sort of say, look, we live these tensions between output and and open-ended process. Don't forget that there are tensions that you need to keep renegotiating and and don't forget that some of them could be less of a tension if we if things were set up differently. And that you might or might have some opportunity to feed into changing them if you think they should be changed.
0: Whatever you think, it came across actually as just—I don't want to say concrete advice because you were you were saying you were trying not to give advice because everyone's lives are different. But just the acceptance of the situation of being of being an and, not an or. You know, both these things can be true. Mm-hmm. I, that I found was really useful. So thank you brilliant before we start to wrap up um any final final bits on this topic do you want to choose how you want to start wrapping things up
1: yeah no I mean I think we've covered quite a lot and um it's been really nice because because I've been able to you know have a few little mini rants (laughs) uh, but also uh also I I hope kind of get across to you
0: you're the most positive ranter I think I've ever spoken to. Can I just say, if this is what you consider to be a rant?
1: <laughs> uh, oh well, that's good. I think that's good. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I've really enjoyed it, and I, and I, I hope, I hope I've managed to get across, you know, how, how, how much I have enjoyed my academic career, but also, you know, why I think academia is such a valuable sort of. Sector of society, if we want to put it like that, um, but also, you know, some of the difficulties which 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 are general difficulties that take very particular forms for for academics and uh, yeah, I I think I think to judge by what you're saying, Emma, at least I, I think I've sort of got my main points across to you, which is you know it's difficult to give. Um, general concrete advice for how to deal with these things, and and I think we should be skeptical about those who feel that they can give us very general and very concrete advice about how to perfectly deal with all these problems and and deal with the experience of failure. Um, you know, um, so that was the main thing that I that I wanted to to get across, along with this thing that I think we agree on that that there is quite a lot of discourse of failure, but it's the wrong sort of discourse of failure. It's kind of what I, when I was thinking about this, I, get, I gave it a little academic title. Uh, I called it the kind of recuperation theory of failure, right? Which is just a sort of uh, uh, my way of saying, you know, most of the discourse on failure is, is what you were describing earlier. It's kind of like, yeah, we all fail, and we should embrace our failure, and we can, can recuperate our failure. You know, we recuperate our failure, and it transforms into success, and success only gets its value from the failure on the journey, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't want to be totally negative about that, because I think there is some value to it in its place, and it's probably better than a discourse that never recognizes failure <laughs> um but I also think it's a it's a huge problem and so i I agree with you there, and I agree with basically what you said was the premise of this this whole series is that you know if nothing else we should try to uh as academics kind of think carefully about what we're doing and um and and way different possibilities. Way different perspectives, and and you know, not come to the closest and, and easiest answers for these things. And I think that the, the, the recuperation theory of failure, this idea that all failure is going to re, be recuperated into success, yeah, you know, it's just manifestly false. <laughs> it's manifestly false um, in life in general. And it's manifestly false in most people's academic careers. Um, you know, not all failure is a is a is a step on the ladder to success. You know, quite a lot of it we could really do without. I think I'm starting to round things up. Does that sound like I'm almost coming to an end?
0: I think so. I think that might be a good place to end. And to answer your question at the start of that, when you said oh, you hoped you'd had a, you know, a sort of positive take on your career and and your research and being in this environment. And I'd actually written down as a thing to say as a su- summary what a positive and upbeat conversation this has been and how much I've enjoyed it and how much I actually feel like, oh, yeah, I love it. I'm so refreshed. Let's do some research. So you, you did have that.
1: Brilliant. Let's go and pursue those transformative insights. <laughs>
0: I'm still going to put that on my to do list tomorrow. You know.
1: <laughs> Perfect.
0: Email IT, have a transformative insight. Like, that's the two that I just tick both boxes. Unless you have any final words, I would just like to say thank you very much for your time and for your insights, advice, thoughts, and feelings on this topic. It's been really lovely to chat to you.
1: It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: That's all for today's episode. But remember, you can find lots more links and resources over in the show notes at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast.